Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is international bestseller Mike Madden. Mike's a highly accomplished writer whose critically acclaimed and best-selling drone series includes four installments all of which he wrote before joining the Jack Ryan universe. In 2017, Mike's first Clancy effort, called Tom Clancy Point of Contact, hit number three on the New York Times bestsellers list, and he followed that up with Tom Clancy Line of Sight in 2018, last year's Tom Clancy's Enemy Contact. Tomorrow, Mike's next novel and the 29th installment in the Jack Ryan universe, which is called Tom Clancy Firing Point, lands at bookstores and an internet near you. Prior to becoming a successful novelist, Mike grew up in California's San Joaquin Valley, earned a PhD in political science, and has extensively studied conflict and technology in international relations. Dr. Madden, welcome back to Writers on the Beat. I'm so honored to have you in the hot seat again, man. Uh, it's my honor to be here, Gavin. So, so great to talk to you again. Well, I, I am blazing through Firing Point right now, Mike, and I am so incredibly excited about this book for the readers who don't have an advanced copy of it, what do you want them to know about it? Uh, I got to be honest with you. I, I just love this book. I, 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 you know, it's like, you know, you have, I have three kids. I love them all, but sometimes <laughs> one catches your fancy. Yes. And uh, this one is just, I just had so much fun doing this one. I have fun doing all of them. It's such a privilege and honor. I, I say that every year and I absolutely mm-hmm. mean it. It's a privilege and honor to write uh, in the Tom Clancy franchise and to write for the fans because I am a fan first and foremost before I was ever a writer and still am a fan and always will be. Uh, and I, and I think, you know, me by now, my, you know, the way I approach these things is, uh, it's a thriller novel. It's, it's, it's high tech, of course, as it should be. It's a Tom Clancy novel. There's violence, which there needs to be because it's a thriller. Uh, but I also just throw in heavy doses of politics and history and culture. And I love that anyway and I, I try to infuse that and express that in the work that i do and this story in particular uh set, i set it in spain and spain just has an amazing and fascinating history all kinds of things have been going on uh the last several years but it was uh, october 1st uh, 2017 that caught my imagination the uh what we we might call the state or the province of catalonia which is where the city of barcelona is located uh, the Catalonian people are, are a distinct uh, people group. They have their own culture, their own history, their own language, going back to at least the Visigoths, if not, you know, before the ancient Romans. And make a long story short, in October 1st, 2017, they voted to become independent. 92% of Catalonians said we want to be our own country, our own state. Uh, just like we did in 1776, yes. we believe in independence. We believe in the right to vote and in self-determination. And so they declared their independence and the Spanish government, of course, dropped the hammer and police and arrests. Uh, Right now, the president, last I read, the president of uh, Catalonia is still in self-exile in Belgium. Uh, Nine of the Catalonian politicians who participate in that process are now sitting in Spanish jails with terms of nine to 14 years or 13 years. Wow. And basically, uh, Madrid said no to self-determination. The European Union said no to self-determination. The United States, the UN. I mean, it's a real tragedy. And it's, a, and, and it's also understandable. It, it's a very mm-hmm. interesting question mark, isn't it? We're at that period in history where we see the advantages of large organizations, of uh, supranational organizations, 
So having the European Union and no borders and one currency conveys all kinds of advantages. But there's also a tremendous social cost, a social yes. cost and economic cost that is now being expressed in things like the Brexit movement, mm-hmm. uh, La Lega in Italy, uh, Poland, Hungary, any number of countries now are rethinking th- their commitment to the sort of transnational proposition because you lose your identity, you lose your autonomy, your independence, your sense of place in the world. You know, the, the, the two of the most important questions we can ask, one of them is, who am I? Yes. And we often define that question, uh, and we do have to define that question by our culture, our language, our history, you know, our sense of place in the world. And so when, when in the heart of Europe, uh, we see echoes of what happened in Franco's Spain in the 30s, you know, reemerging in a sense, you know, in 2019, I just, I, it captured my imagination. I need to jump into it. And uh, for my history buffs out there who love history as much or more than I do, uh, if you've ever read, uh, of course, ni- uh, George Orwell's 1984. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's funny how when we were younger and we read that, we said, wow, science fiction in the future. I wonder if this will happen. Now it looks like he's about seven months behind the current headlines. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. But the thing about George Orwell is, uh, everything you need to know about him really as a writer and as a political philosopher, I would say probably had its origins. He fought in the Spanish Civil War. He fought in the area of Barcelona. And he has a book called, if you've never read it, uh, Homage to Catalonia. Okay. Uh, it's a short book. It's autobiographical. I absolutely recommend it. But that book also inspired me to say, you know, here's a chance to jump into a, a Tom Clancy novel, having that in my you know, in my quiver. So this book is really, make a long story short, sorry for the long answer. Jack Ryan Jr. is chasing down the terrorist killers uh, of an old college friend of his uh, uh, while he's in Spain. Uh, He's on vacation in Spain. He goes into a bar. He bumps this old friend. He leaves. And again, the context is uh, the Catalonian independence movement. There are terror groups around there. You know, the Basques were bombing all over Spain in the 1980s and the 70s. Well, this friend is killed. And so Jack Ryan Jr. sets out uh, to chase down these terrorist killers of his old friend. But at the same time, his dad, President Ryan, is battling this invisible high-tech enemy who's sinking ships uh, in the remote South Pacific. Yeah, and you've composed and beautifully crafted this fantastic complex story that's threatening to land very near the top of my favorites in the entire Jack Ryan universe. Uh, So to, to, to... Avert the risk of me sounding like a gushing fanboy. I want to sum up my my praise with this so far by saying that in some alternate parallel universe, Firing Point is a novel that's making Tom Clancy into a Jack Ryan Jr. fan. And I am so incredibly grateful to you and Tom Colgan and everyone else that was involved in putting this together and carrying on this legacy so that readers like us can continue to live in this universe. Yeah, the Clancy Estate has been fantastic to support the series. Of course, Tom Colgan is a series editor. He works for Penguin Random House and he oversees the series. He's just done a brilliant job of bringing in new writers and superintending uh, the franchise, you know, to make sure that, you know, knuckleheads like me don't accidentally, you know, bump into the shelf and, you know, break some of the pottery. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, great, great folks. Uh, uh, Laura, uh, my new pub- publicist, is doing a fantastic job for the book. I mean, really, everyone at the team is just fantastic and supportive. They, they've given me the most amount of creative freedom you can possibly believe. It's, 
there's a few rules in the Clancy universe that need to be respected. And I get mm -hmm. that. And one of them, for example, is no one can know who Jack Ryan Jr. is. Right. Uh, you say, wait a minute, he's got the same name as the president and, and all of that. But truthfully, it makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. if suddenly, if imagine if Jack Ryan Jr. was Brad Pitt, it'd be kind of hard for Brad Pitt to do a lot of undercover work. Right. So it makes perfect sense that no one knows who he is. So I, uh, and so for me, the fun in this book in particular, I go into some depth about how they actually hide his identity. Uh, because this is actually a concern now uh, mm -hmm. in the age of social media and the age of uh, open source intelligence, mm -hmm. as well as all the other forms of intelligence that are out there. It's very, very difficult for operatives to operate uh, in the world. And so there are actually uh, government and private agencies that spend a lot of time masking uh, actual identities or creating false identities so our people you know, can do their work in the world. Yeah, it's not as easy as just making up a fake DMV file like it used to be when uh, you know we'd get the the fake cop IDs so we could go buy dope. It's a whole different uh, whole different animal now, especially operating at that level. Yeah, it's really cute when you see uh, some of the older um, oh, TV shows or you know some of the old, uh, detective shows. Uh, the bad guy or the bad gal walks over to the the graveyard and finds someone who passed away. <laughs> you know, in 1927, and you take that identity. And oh, you're fine. You got a whole new ID. Uh, not anymore. Um, no. If you're one of those folks, uh, like our own family, who thought that 23andMe was a bright idea, and you basically vomit up your own DNA and mm -hmm. pay for them to take it from you, yes. And God knows what they're doing with it. Um, you know, you're creating genetic profiles out mm -hmm. in the world now. Let alone, you know, the the digital footprints we leave every single day when we get on the internet. Yeah. The uh... Uh, when I talked to Brad Taylor this year, um, he uh, he always terrifies me every time I talk to the guy. Um, is you know he reveals some some piece of tech that I didn't realize was was out there or some 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 connects some dots, and uh, he was like uh, you know explaining that the uh, one of the I guess controlling interest in in Google um, is a uh, a Russian national whose wife owns twenty three and Me. <laughs> so between that that one family has tremendous access. To personal information and you know good bad or otherwise uh, it seems like one family shouldn't have that much information but you know who am i <laughs> oh i'll tell you who you are i'll, I'll look you <laughs> yeah exactly the tools that we have in our availability i'll yeah. see where you've been riding your bike today i'll see mm -hmm. uh, what your self-reported weight is yep uh yeah i mean it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Uh, yeah. We thought the information age was going to be this nirvana of universal peace and knowledge, and it turns out to be this sort of Orwellian nightmare of Big Brother tracking you everywhere, knowing everything about you. Uh, you sneeze, and 13 pop-up ads show up on your Instagram for you know, cough and cold remedies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it's an amazing time that we live in. And obviously, all those things are good. Um, there's a lot of advantages mm -hmm. to the world that we live in now. But it's as with everything else, the technology is neutral. It's whoever has control of it that you have to be concerned about. So I don't fault the technology. I just fault the technologists right. who have it. One of my favorite aspects of reading thrillers uh, as, as a reader is, is getting to find and experience the, the little gems, the Easter eggs that are scattered throughout the pages as, as cultural and uh, historical references that are almost function like an inside joke between the author and the reader. And uh, one of the first ones I ran across in Firing Point is uh, without you know, spoiling any, any aspect of the subplot, 
was a reference to the Typhoon class Russian sub Red October. And uh, when I read that after talking to you last year and, and sharing our, our, our love of that book and, and our introduction of the Clancy verse um, with that story, it was almost like, you know, uh, time and space apart, like, you know, I'm laying in bed at night having this, you know, uh, shared experience with Mike Madden, the incredible author over this, over this shared love of Red October. And I am finding, of course, now many more of these Easter eggs as I'm going through the book. I, I've actually started uh, post-it noting them so I can come back to them, refer to them later. <laughs> what I wonder is there's a personal Easter egg in here that you're willing to share that the readers may not identify on their own? I, you know, it's actually several. Um, number one, I love film. I just am a, I was basically raised by a 24 inch RCA console television set. Uh, and literally the, the Bijou theater, which was about a block and a half from my house. I mean, I grew up watching TV and movies. And so that's always my first love along with reading, obviously. And, um, so one of the things I do in every novel, because as you well know, Gavin, because you're also a, an excellent writer. Uh, the appreciate the flattery. Where, well, <laughs> it's, not, it's not flattery if it's true. So, uh, you know, where do you get names from? And so it's always a challenge, especially in a 100,000 word novel, uh, coming up with interesting names, relevant names, uh, and a theme, uh, you know, th sort of thematics of names. So I'll make a long story short, uh, very often I will pick a movie that I, I love that happens maybe fit, you know, the, the story that I'm writing about at some weird level, you know, so there might be a, a character uh, in the novel that I'm reminded of by the certain actor and that actor was in this film. So it's not that I'm taking the, uh, the story of the film, I'm just taking the actors that I like. And so then I'll start using actor names or actually cast and crew names altogether. <laughs> From one movie. Now I'll mix and match them, right? Because I'm not gonna say Alec Guinness, you know, for example. <laughs> you know, but I, I just absolutely love like Bridge River Kwai is fantastic. I love uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, there's all kinds of awesome movies. I just, you know, the classics I love. And so I'll, I'll, I'll use cast and crew member names from one film just to sort of drive the whole thing when I get stuck for names. So that's one way I Easter egg things. And uh, another way is, um, you know, when you are in a particular country, uh, Slovenia or, you know, uh, Catalonia, uh, you get stuck for names, you want to be authentic. I wind up using uh, sometimes uh, the names of different sports teams, you know, national sports teams. Mm -hmm. And so I'll grab the names from there and again, mix and match. But then I'll also then, you know, grab the face of say the player I'm thinking of and use that face when I, you know, build out my character sheets. So I have a face I'm looking at when I, when that character pops up. So that's, uh, I don't know that's exactly Easter egg qual uh, qualified, but it's one, one of the tricks of the trade. Now, since you kind of brought up a, a little bit in there, um, your, your uh, you know, small town, relatively rural upbringing, I, I personally attribute a lot of my own successes and accomplishments to having grown up in a small town and uh, having been surrounded by the work ethic that a lot of that environment requires. Do you think you'd be where you are today if you had started life somewhere else? Well, I'd have to say no. Uh, unless wherever I started out, uh, I was around my mom and dad, uh, who were both children of the depression and had incredible work ethics. Like you said, um, success in, in our culture, uh, is largely defined by work ethic. 
Mm -hmm. And some of us, for whatever reasons, have to work harder than others. Some of us have some disadvantages. But all things being equal, take two people with the same background, the one that works the hardest is going to win the most. And um, I have, over the years, friends and acquaintances have said, man, I wish I could be a writer. You know, all you do is sit around and <laughs> write. And uh, <laughs> I look at their life and I'm like, I, I know why you're not a writer because yeah. um, this, this, I mean, I have, you know, I've worked in slaughterhouses, I've worked in feed mills, I've worked in warehouses, I mean, I've driven forklifts. I mean, you know, I've done it all and I'm proud of it. I do it again in a heartbeat. I, it's not mm -hmm. a, you know, I, I like hard work. Yes. I've never worked harder in my life than when I write these novels because I, I put so much into it and I feel like I'm at work 24 hours a day. And by that, I mean, I'm often sleeping and dreaming about yes. the story every night because I'm so into it which is great. I mean, again, it's a blessing. I am blessed mm -hmm. and privileged and honored to do what I do. I'm so grateful for the fans that continue to buy the books that write me encouraging notes. I mean, every time I get a note from a, a reader, it just, it makes my day. I'm, I'm again, I'm the most lucky. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I feel like I've won the lottery now eight times in a row because I now have my eighth book coming mm -hmm. out. But having said that though, you know, the responsibility of that is to do the very best job you can. And so whether it's, you know, traveling overseas which is not exactly a hardship but you know it's time and effort and, mm -hmm. and treasure uh to research to whatever um it's hard hard work and so if you don't bring a a, a strong work ethic to the writing discipline uh you're done mm -hmm. and everybody has an idea in their head lots of people have really good ideas that could be a novel but not many people actually sit down to do it and of the ones that sit down to do it almost no one finishes it and so the ability to push it all the way through to the end, um, very often for me, it, it's, it's as much about effort and exertion and intentionality as it is about joy and, and the sheer fun of being able to do this. Now, on that note, a major theme of this podcast is that you only need about a decade of blood, sweat, tears, and toil to, to become an overnight success. <laughs> and the, the, the book Business in General to me is no exception to that. Um, I wonder what your progress was like from inspired author to bestseller. You know, that's a great question. Um, I mean, every writer has their own path. There, there is no one way to the top of the mountain. There's a lot of ways up. And the single most important thing that a writer needs to figure out, well, the single most important thing of 10 most single most important things. <laughs> right. But I'll have to put it this way. So the most important thing is know thyself. You've got to know yourself. Really, why are you doing this? Why do you want to do it? Uh, what do you lose by not doing it? What do you think you gain by doing it? Uh, very often we start to write for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and, and very often we say we know we're writers, we want to write, we're desperate to write, but we don't. And what we're not acknowledging then is there's something even more that I want by not writing. And it usually is to save some version of myself. In other words, to avoid pain, mm -hmm. to avoid emotional death, psychological death. So I'll make it long story short, sorry for the repetition, but it boils down to I want to be a writer. I am a writer, but if I actually write something and it's terrible, then maybe I'm not a writer. So I just won't write. And so ironically, you seek to save your life as a writer by not writing. And guess what? You lose your life as a writer. Yes. So 
you know, for me, very early on, meaning at age 40, when I started doing this, I knew I didn't have the talent. I knew I wasn't very good. I knew that the people I loved and admired as writers, I could never reach that level, but I knew I was supposed to write. And so I gave up any idea of impressing anybody else, you know, and just being obedient to the call in my life. I know I'm supposed to write, I'm going to write. And that gave me such freedom because yeah. there's, you know, the success then is obedience to the gift. You know, are you a great novelist? Absolutely. If you finished your novel, you're a great novelist. That's my only definition of a great novelist. Um, finishing is so hard. Mm -hmm. So for all the young writers out there, new writers, and you might be 80 years old and just starting out, get at it, you know, start it and finish it. And that's, that's how I started out was just, I'm, I'm going to be faithful to this thing. And, 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 you know, the way you learn to write is by writing. There's no substitute. You can read a million books on writing. Doesn't mean anything. You've yes. got to write. I would never, ever go to a surgeon who said, I've read every book on surgery. <laughs> Sorry, I don't care. I thank you very much. I'd rather go to the old fisherman, you know, who's been, you know, opening up clans with his knife and, and, you know, stitching up his own, his own wounds mm -hmm. out in the boat. I'd go to him first before I'd go to a surgeon's only read books. So, you know, you only learn to write by writing. So you jump in, you make the commitment, you understand what the commitment is, you know why you're doing it, you, you know what it costs you to do it, and you know what happens if you don't do it. And you jump in and you write with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you, and you leave the outcome to others because you can't control it. There's no controlling the outcome. That tangents really well into another of this podcast themes, which is, you know, helping, you know, with technical advice for writers who want to incorporate authenticity into their writing. Um, from a techno thriller aspect, how do you suggest writers who are interested in writing, composing techno thrillers, that they start creating the background necessary so that when they put that story together, the details are right? Yeah, that's a really, that's a good question too. Uh, again, th there's many paths to the top of that mountain too. Um, I think the reason why we're seeing awesome writers like Brad Taylor and uh, so many others who have military experience and uh, military service combat experience coming into the, the thriller genre, the techno thriller genre, is the same reason why we have so many uh, police officers and uh, retired police officers mm -hmm. who are writing in the crime genre. Uh, you know, it's pretty darn authentic to talk to a, a, a law enforcement officer who is also writing books about it. And, and there's really, in some ways, I mean, there's no substitute for that. Um, but experience in combat or experience as a law enforcement officer does not a writer make. You still have to create the story. Mm -hmm. But what happens if you're a storyteller and you don't have the actual experience, as in my case, I'm, I don't have military experience. Um, there's several ways to go. Uh, even the best of the techno thriller writers, for example, Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy had no military experience. He started out as an insurance salesman. But boy, could that guy research. Yes. Now, some people accuse me of being halfway intelligent because they read the book <laughs> and say, how do you know all this stuff? And I said, I don't know all this stuff, but I have an uncle named Google. And yeah. he's a, he, he has this thing called the interwebs. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can find out just about anything. And, and you do. You can't believe what you can find. Yes. But having said that, it was Tom Clancy back in the day before, hey, you youngins, there was a time actually before the internet 
there's a thing called a public library. It had this big giant wooden box with these little paper cards called, you know, index cards mm -hmm. and the card catalog. And you, you ran your fingers over these paper squares and said, here's where a book is located or a magazine article or a microfiche. And here's Tom Clancy running around in public libraries, fishing out unbelievable top secret details that supposedly shouldn't have been made available. So whatever you might lack in personal experience, you can make up for with a dogged determination to go and find out. Also, pick up a phone. Uh, mm -hmm. Experts very often love to uh, talk about their expertise. They're experts in their field because they love it. So pick up the phone and talk to them. In my case, when I write about Spain, I want to actually go there. I'd been there before, but wanted to go back. Uh, the, in fact, we almost weren't sure if we'd be able to even go because the riots were going on and the airport actually was closed a couple of days before we even flew in, but it all cleared mm -hmm. up. We got in we snuck in. It was all good. Um, but there's nothing like being on the ground. And, mm -hmm. you know, when, when my character is uh, drinking an adult beverage in my book, trust me, <laughs> I've been thoroughly researched, brother. Uh, and, and the food and everything mm -hmm. else. So, you know, Give yourself permission to not have total knowledge because no one does. Um, you know, Gavin, you help me out. I've read and I understand that sometimes eyewitness testimony is sometimes the least reliable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So even if you have, you know, combat experience, that's your combat experience. Right. That's absolutely valid and true. But that doesn't give you, you know, all knowledge. So even the guys that are, have done it and are doing great jobs writing it, they still do research. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of have I had the experience, it's a matter of where do I get this information from? Google, read books, talk to people, go to places. And by the way, if you're new techno thrillers, you better understand how weapons work. Yes. So if you write about shotguns, uh, go shoot a shotgun. If, you sh if you're talking about Glock 19s, go to the gun range and rent one, if nothing else, and fire off a few rounds. If you, just, if you are concerned about doing that, there's always range instructors, there's, there's people you can, you know, pay a, a very reasonable price to or just take a, a general class mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 learn how to fire these weapons understand you know what 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 it feels like to have you know a nine millimeter you know double stack semi-auto in your hand what happens when you pull that trigger uh, since you and I last spoke uh, someone asserted to me that uh, there there is no such thing as science fiction anymore there's only science that hasn't yet come to market um, and kind of a, on a Similar light, I, it seems to me that artificial intelligence and computer learning have become so pervasive in our everyday society that you can't possibly put any kind of techno thriller together without incorporating those elements. Where do you think this technology is, is kind of taking us and uh, as authors and as, as, as people? <laughs> um, you're actually speaking to my avatar. I couldn't make <laughs> Well, my, uh, my computer is doing this interview for us. So, um, no, I mean, that's, I mean, that is a great question. Um, yeah, I, I figured out a long time ago that there really is no such thing as science fiction anymore. It's all, it's all here. Um, depending on who you talk to, uh, Kurt, I guess Kurt Vile would be one of them, but, um, uh, the singularity is going to happen in theory around 2049. Uh, and, for lack of a better term, at some point, artificial intelligence becomes more intelligent than us. Yes. Uh, we become the second most intelligent species on the planet. There's no question that uh, in some ways, you and I are already cyborgs. 
um, I'm not talking to you right now. I'm, I'm yakking at a computer. Uh, mm. And my voice is, is conveying over, you know, the, through the ether and, and, and hitting you and, and vice versa. We're already so connected to these machines. I, I heard, uh, actually, Elon Musk the other day, he had a great analogy. You know, have you ever walked out the door without your cell phone? Not in a long time. But when, if yeah. you start to lose it, what do you feel like? Oh yeah, like, yeah, it's, I, almost I, like it's almost like missing limb syndrome, you know. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd rather lose my wallet. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So we are already sort of merging with this technology. You know, we think that's in the future. No, it's already happened, man. We're we're there. There's no question. We're already there. So you know, when I did my drone series, starting with the first one, drone, and the other three books that followed, it became very clear to me in my research that. Um, Artificial intelligence is going to be driving absolutely everything. Uh, and, I, and by everything, I mean capital E. Mm -hmm. So even a few years ago, uh, it's dated now, uh, Oxford University uh, had a study, and um, they were saying that within 20 years, 49% of all American jobs would be replaced by automation. And by all, what I mean is not just, not just the robotic ditch digger, mm -hmm. which we all think, oh, and that's no big deal. Uh, doctors, mm -hmm. uh, right now, Watson, uh, the IBM computer is better able to diagnose patients than humans are. So doctors, cardiologists, radiologists, you know, high pain, high tech jobs. It, if there's something that can be digitized, it will be. Mm -hmm. Because human beings are, are enormously fragile creatures. So whether it's from the combat perspective, where you put a pilot in a plane, suddenly needs a G-suit because his body can't stand the G-forces, mm -hmm. needs oxygen because he's too high up in the air or she's too high up in the air. Things like missiles blow up next to them so they need armor around the cockpit and on and on and on. You take the human out of the cockpit, that vehicle travels much faster. It can, it can now be engaged in swarm activity where you have 500 fighter aircraft all controlled by one computer brain rather than 500 human brains trying to figure out how to do the combat. So whether it's, it's uh, AI generals and admirals you know, playing computerized military chess, it's going to go all the way down to accountants and attorneys. It's going to go all the way down to teaching. It just goes on and on and on because the problem is this. Human beings are fragile, they break down, they get sick, they get pregnant, they get angry, mm -hmm. uh, they fall in love with the wrong people, they steal things, they want vacations. S human beings, I've read, even want to eat meals, like every Regularly. day, three times yeah. a day. So suddenly what you find is the cost of employing a human is so enormously expensive and inefficient compared to what a machine can do, a machine that never goes on strike, never asks for a pay increase, never, yep. right? Never gets yep. angry, never mouths off, never shows up to work late. So there's every reason to think that, at, I would say at least 49% of jobs are at risk, if not more. And by the way, including the creative arts. Yes. It's a, matter of, it's a matter of time. And there are already entire albums composed by machines. You know, there are orchestrations uh, by machines. It's only a matter of time before uh, computers will be generating uh, pulp novels again. I, I just have, I have no doubt in my brain at all. Yeah, they, I had uh, read maybe, uh, my timeline is kind of a blur right now, but I would say about four months ago about an ad agency that was using um, computer learning and AI software to write their ad content and that their ad content was 
um, universally more motivating and engaging to humans than content written by humans because it was so much more deliberate and intelligently placed. Um, you know, so that I agree. I, I don't think even, you know, being an author, being a painter, being anything creative is, is a safe field. Well, I love what you just said. I've not read that article, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, if I'm walking down the street and I just mentioned to my wife, man, I would love to get a sandwich. And suddenly I get, you know, four ads for sandwiches on my phone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if they have all of this data on me, I mean, they can, I mean, you know this, I mean, you, mm -hmm. you're former law enforcement. Um, you know, when you have a profile on a person, it helps you kind of figure out what they might do and what they might do in the future. Yes. Now, and that's on one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Google, based on my searches, pretty much knows what my interests are in the world. Yes. And so if I can get Google, not just to advertise, but to create ads based on me, mm -hmm. I mean, they could really tailor an ad that really speaks to my heart because they, they see what I'm searching all the time. So it makes perfect sense. And, you know, people say, well, they'll never you know, replace people because only people can be creative. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyone thinks that I recommend a, uh, oh gosh, it's on Netflix. It's a, a documentary. It was, it's called AlphaGo. Mm, yeah. If you've not seen that, and if you, you know, if you suffer from narcolepsy and you're looking for a way to stay constantly alert, watch that, because um, in in the game of Go, which is arguably the oldest uh, organized, continuously played game in human history, at least two thousand years old, um, there are more possible moves in the game of Go than there are known particles in the universe. So there's no way mm. for a computer to, you know, to hold all possible moves and mm -hmm. then pick one. So, so we said you know, a computer can never beat a human because you have to use creativity within the context of so many choices. Well, AlphaGo is now, you know, Alpha, the, the Go system has, has completely wiped out human beings in that game. Uh, and that was from several years ago. And it's only improving exponentially. It's unbelievable. So, yeah. Uh, back to thriller writers. I'm sorry, and thrillers. I apologize for topic. <laughs> no, but no. It's if you don't nod your head to, uh, for example, artificial intelligence, then you better create a story that intentionally is a, avoiding it. Mm -hmm. So you're stranded on a desert island where there are no computers and no electricity, and uh, no cell signals, because otherwise, if you've got a cell phone, if you're stuck on that desert island, uh, you have access to artificial intelligence, or it has access to you. I do always like to uh, to close out interviews on kind of an existential note. Um, so I got a, a, a couple hypotheticals for you, Mike. First, based on firing point, should you find yourself in a similar position to what Jack Ryan Jr. faces at the opening of this novel where you're on vacation taking some time off from work to, uh, you know, de-stress a bit, and you end up running into an old friend only minutes before they're killed, uh, maybe before they're murdered, and you have a chance to bring in a couple fictional investigators and you can pick anyone you want to be on this team. Who do you bring in? Wow. That's a, that's a great question. That, that's a really great question. Um, uh, maybe Alex Landon. <laughs> he would be honored. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get him in there. Um, yeah, boy. 
I'll confess, I just binge watched, because I'm about to launch a new project. I just binge watched the uh, Cumberbatch uh, Sherlock Holmes series. Mm -hmm. It's stunning. Uh, if you've not seen that particular version of Sherlock, it's unbelievable. Speaking of British detective stories, yes. the thing they do, uh, the major characters they're willing to kill off. Um, but, you know, what you have to love about the Sherlock Holmes character, of course, and it goes back to, to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, not Benedict Cumberbatch, yes. is observational skills. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really amazing how really all science, all human knowledge begins with observation. And so having someone who absolutely sees everything, pays attention to everything, uh, and can process information uh, is a skill I would really, really want at hand. Uh, the flip side is I got to go to the Tom Clancy universe. I really, really want John Clark by my side. Yes. Because... Benedict Cumberbatch is an amazing actor, but he is kind of a, shall we say, sun-deprived uh, <laughs> English actor. Uh, I, I want a rough and tumble guy like John Clark uh, with bullet and blade mm -hmm. to take care of business. Yes. So between uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, i.e. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, and John Clark, those are the two guys I want. For the, this last one, suppose a writer wanted to put together a, uh, a character, and maybe this character uh, grew up in rural San Joaquin Valley, <laughs> fairly humble beginnings, has the work ethic and the aspirations to, uh, to eventually earn a PhD and, and become a very successful and very humble and kind author. So somebody putting this together, a, a Mike Madden-esque character, what oh would you most want them to get right about that protagonist? <laughs> um, that it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> and uh, that reiterates the humility, yes. <laughs> and also the honesty. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, you know, I... Hard work covers a multitude of sins and shortcomings. So I just really, um, I, mean, I appreciate the question. I, and I, I think I know what you're driving at, but I, my encouragement to anybody, I, I really knew I couldn't write. I knew I couldn't be a writer or a published writer. I knew I couldn't have a career at it. I mean, these are the voices in your head. I mean, if you love literature, you love writing, you love the language, You've, you've read the great writers and you know it's out of your reach. But they started the same place. And I'm not, of course, nowhere near the greats. But the one thing that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle can't do, that uh, the biographer, you know, Chernow can't do, that Tom Collins can't do, is they don't have my voice. And I don't have your voice, Gavin. And you don't have whoever's listened to us. We each have a unique voice. The only thing we can ever bring to the table is ourselves. And when we say, I'm, I will be a writer, I will write, what we're giving ourselves permission is to be ourselves. And you know, the most important thing you ever discover as a writer is your own voice. And your own voice is the purest reflection of yourself. And there's no person on the planet who has more experience or more intimate knowledge of you than you. And I don't mean to sound like, you know, some therapy session, um, 
by a bad pop psychologist on a TV show. Or something. <laughs> but it, it really is that, that simple and that impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that passage, first uh, Corinthians 13, everyone knows it, you know, about, you know, faith, hope, and love, mm-hmm. which is awesome. But there is also part of that at the end, which I also love, you know, for we see through a glass darkly, you know, but then we shall know even as we are fully known. And what that tells me is that, at least on this side, knowing ourselves fully is almost impossible, you know, because mm-hmm. of the human condition, because of all kinds of stuff. But when we write, if we're going to tell the truth, we're telling the truth out of our heart and out of our experience. And if you're not going to tell the truth in your writing, and I'm a fiction writer, and my goal, I feel, is to tell the truth mm-hmm. as a fiction writer, I have to tell the truth as I understand it, which means I have to understand myself. And so the writing journey at some level is an outward journey, but at the same time, it's always an inward journey. And a lot of times when I write, I actually am discovering more about what I really believe about the world and what I believe about myself. And um, so in a way, the writing is also saving me, at least at a small s. The the writing is helping me to become the person I'm supposed to be. And uh, in turn, the writing that you see is a reflection of where I am right now. And hopefully my next book is better than this one, in part, hopefully because I'm a better human being after, after the next book. And on that note, what, uh, what can readers look forward to in the next, uh, next couple of years? What are the, the projects that you've got coming out on uh, that well, the, the fans yeah. can, can anticipate? Well, thank you yeah, thank you for asking. My, uh, my next project is my first collaborative project. Wow. And uh, at this moment, it is completely and utterly top secret. <laughs> it is awesome. Um, it's a new character that I absolutely love. It's going to be the basis of a whole new series. Um, when it comes out, you'll know it. Uh, or at least when, when ready to talk about it, you'll know it. Um, it's uh, because of the person I'm partnering with. I think it's going to make a, a pretty big splash. I'm, I'm very excited about where this thing is and where it's going to go. And, um, you know, a, a new thriller in the genre, a new series in the genre is very difficult these days. Yes. And uh, I, I've always believed in characters first and foremost. Uh, I think I think all stories are basically uh, characters making choices. So plot to me is secondary, characters primary. And this character is just so awesome. I just, I think that I think readers are going to really resonate with this character and actually several characters, but particularly the main one. Well, you know, if you have an advanced copy that you need to send somewhere, I can get you an address. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. No question. Absolutely. I I genuinely and greatly appreciate you making time to come back on the show, Mike. It's always an honor to talk to you and and to have you here. Um, I am so grateful for everything that you've done for me personally and, and, and for the show. Um, I, 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 I am honored to be with you and to hang out with you. It's a privilege. I, I, all I, I don't do anything except show up. So <laughs> my efforts are limited, but I, I, I do appreciate you. And thank you for talking about Firing Point. Um, I love this book. It was a lot of fun. I hope it sounds like you're enjoying it. I hope you are. Mm-hmm. Um, the exploding vampire robot part, I guess you haven't gotten to yet. That's coming up soon. Coming up soon. <laughs> yeah. So you'll enjoy that part, especially, I think. Um, yeah. But other than that, uh, when, you, uh, when you finish it, let me know. And I, hope you, I hope you love it. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed bestseller Mike Madden. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.